I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Matt Slepin, Managing Director and Co-Head of Real Estate at ZRG Partners, a global talent advisory firm that is changing the way companies hire and manage talent. Matt founded Terra Search Partners in 2006, which became part of ZRG Partners in 2022 to help expand ZRG's business in all aspects of the real estate sector. Since 2017, Matt has been the host of the podcast series, Leading Voices in Real Estate, where he has conversations with leaders in the real estate industry about their career journeys and the businesses that they run. Leading Voices is one of my favorite podcasts and a must for anyone in commercial real estate. In today's conversation, we discuss how Matt's career in real estate eventually led him to recruiting, what trends Matt is seeing with respect to hiring given the current macro environment, and what the real estate industry is doing to build a more diverse workforce. Matt, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Brandon. Good to see you and to be with you. Well, I'm excited for our podcast today. I know that I spent a lot of time listening to you interview other people. So it's fun for me to be able to flip the script and help you share your story and a little bit about what you've seen over your career, along with what's happening now in the commercial real estate space. So maybe you can start by introducing yourself and your firm to our listeners for those who may not know you. And please also touch on your podcast a little bit. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I'm Matt Slepin. I'm a managing director and co-head of real estate for ZRG Partners, which is a global talent management firm. So we're recruiters and we have other services related to human capital and we're worldwide. And I joined ZRG about eight months ago, having sold my firm Terra Search Partners to ZRG. I'm sure we'll talk about that. I've been a recruiter for about 25 years. And then also I am a podcast host and I have a podcast called Leading Voices in Real Estate. And of course, interviewed Alex Robinson from Juniper Square about six, eight months ago, which was a wonderful conversation. And we could talk about things that we find that the best guests always talk about. It'd be really interesting. But anyhow, so that's that's me. A lot of people know executive search and recruiting, but you mentioned you're in the human capital business. Can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you into this line of business and kind of how you've seen the human capital business evolve over the last two and a half decades or so? Yeah. Well, so there's a lot to that question. Let me give the two minute story of my life and how I got here. And then maybe the five minute story about what recruiting means and what it means in the real estate business. So first of all, I started my career in Washington, D.C. in the real estate business. I spent about 20 years in a career there. And I did a little bit of everything over that period of time. I was an asset manager. I was a loan originator. I was a government employee. I worked at the RTC back during the SNL crisis. And then I ran a group called the Multifamily Housing Institute, which was a trade group trying to create transparency in the apartment business, actually with some ties to what Juniper Square does today. And then my wife had a corporate relocation and I was what we in the business call a trailing spouse. I was 40 years old. I had to up and move myself from my career and my life to California and San Francisco. And it was a curse and a blessing. The curse was that I couldn't run this group called the Multifamily Housing Institute anymore. It was also a blessing because that really wasn't what I should have been doing. And I took about six months to try to figure it out and wound up in recruiting. And recruiting all of a sudden gelled who I was and who I could be as a professional. And it gelled who I could be as a professional within the real estate business. And we could talk a little bit more later on about what that means in terms of, first of all, I was a little lost in my career before. I had an awkward and odd resume and I played every role. So I understand all facets of real estate from these jobs that I did. And through some of the pain I had in my early career, I could really empathize with candidates who were trying to figure themselves out. 
But then I found myself in search, and that was about 25 years ago, and it was all of a sudden, here I am, I can do this. And as I got to understand it, I had the belief for the first time in my career that I could be great, and I could make a difference, and I could build something. And all of those quickly came to my head as aspirations for this, and I've been in the business for about 25 years. After about eight years in the business, I formed Terra Search Partners. I found myself somewhat unemployable by other firms because I was insistent on an approach and insistent on a level of quality and level of passion that doesn't fit everyone in the search business. So I formed Terra Search Partners back in 2006. We were very lucky. We had about two years of runway before the global financial crisis hit. So the firm got established in time for the GFC and then it died. But then we had a really good run and we had Terra Search Partners for about 15 years, 16 years. Great company. I had a lot of pride in having a small business and being the leader of a small business. And we developed, I think, a great reputation in the marketplace. I didn't have a succession plan. And that's something we talk about in human capital world. But succession wasn't there for me at Terra. And so we wound up selling the firm and joined ZRG Partners about eight, nine months ago. And so that's what brought me to ZRG. It's fascinating. You talk about being unemployable and, and you have the unique privilege of having a, a, mid, a midlife or mid-career pivot. I guess before we dive too too in, too much into the details here, you found what was best for you. But kind of how do you think about coaching others to come to that same conclusion? Because I often talk to people in a similar way that you do, where they're looking to make a pivot, whether that's from commercial real estate as a traditional asset class into technology, or from one discipline within real estate, call it asset management, to something new like ESG or sustainability. So, kind of how do you think about working with? candidates and professionals in our industry who are both, you know, experienced and interested in doing something new or find themselves needing to do something new? Yeah. So it's a fascinating question. And pivot, I think of the word pivot and I also think of the word chasm. And I often talk to people about, oh, your pivot has a chasm and you're going to have to jump over the Grand Canyon. Forget about it. You want to jump over a narrow creek and you can make that work. And so what are the things in someone's career that they don't leave behind, but they build upon to do that next thing? And so pivots and chasms are really, really interesting questions. I talk about people, talk to people about this all the time. The You want to benefit from all of the wisdom and all of the contacts and all of the work you've done before. You have become the person that you are now takes years to become that, right? This bucket of skills, bucket of experiences, and in real estate, really important bucket of relationships. So when you make that pivot, how does that pivot benefit from all of that prior experience? For me, it worked incredibly well. And I did this thing that one in a thousand people want to do, which is recruiting. So this isn't the normal place people pivot to. That's thought number one. Second thing is in real estate, finding the role that speaks to who you are is a real challenge. I think everyone in real estate wants to be in acquisitions. That's kind of transactions. That's the headline of real estate. And we'll talk about this on the on in our conversation, but that's not the whole real estate business at all whatsoever. It's the sexy high-level part that everyone sees, but not everyone should be in that side of the business. And so what role fits your clock speed? What role fits your relationship orientation? What role fits your skill set and your attributes is the really important thing to find. And for me, it was a real challenge. It is interesting to to think about this. I, you know, as as you know, I've had a my own kind of personal journey where not dissimilar from the story that you just told, I, you know, convinced myself at a very young age that I wanted to be a developer when I grew up, but I didn't really know what being a developer meant. And it wasn't until about 10, 12 years into my career that I had the opportunity to meet with a very prominent developer in the Bay Area who said, I'll make you a developer, but you're going to go back to doing what developers who know nothing about development do, right? You're an analyst. You're going to get paid like an analyst. You're going to look at spreadsheets like an analyst. And that's what you're going to do. And I realized very quickly that, oops, I did not want to be a developer because those activities were not the things that necessarily kind of brought out the best in me. So I think it's an interesting way to approach this pivot 
concept as you as you talked and about. And you just said two things. It's interesting. You could have gone back to being 22, both in salary and in skill and learning curve to be a developer. And I thought you were going there, but then what you wound up saying is actually when you thought about the skill sets in developer, those skill sets didn't line up with who you were. And you did find the thing that winds up really well with the person that Brandon is. And I've been so impressed with you that way. And technology is half of it because technology is the area in which you do it, but relationships and building and sales and marketing, you're exceptional at that stuff. So you found that place where the core of you could really shine. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Matt. No, it's just true. Uh, it means a lot. Means a lot coming from you. So let's let's change gears a little bit because I think we have a lot of ground to cover. But we're, you know, needless to say, this is being recorded in you know February of 2023 when the macroeconomic vi- environment is anything but certain. You know, the Fed just intre- increased interest rates once again. We still have a war going on in Russia and Ukraine, an impending slash near certain recession, according to many. So. What is that doing to the human capital markets in commercial real estate from a macro perspective? And what are the types of conversations that you're having with executives who are thinking about, you know, the next 12 to 18 months in their businesses? Yeah. So a a couple of, a lot of things about this. So, and I'm a relative optimist and I don't want to be the person that I was when the GFC started and I thought it was going to be three months. So because that was five years or whatever the period of time was. I think this one is relatively short-term and transitional overall. I think that the market right now, first of all, the transaction market in real estate is 90% shut down. We all know that. So the volumes are really far down. And the ability to have pricing power and understanding visibility on whether to buy a piece of land at today's price, whether to buy a property at today's price is is n- not a high ve- level of visibility right now. So that's shut that side of the business down. The other part is that the transformation of the office market and work from home and long-term, what that means is going to be, I think, long and brutal. And so that's going to raise lots of questions and lots of ripple effects across the real estate business. That said, I think the real estate business and investment real estate generally is in really strong position. The fundamentals are good, again, except for the questions around office and work from home. And so I think the long-term prognosis is actually strong. We're going to continue, and everyone loves the two darling sectors of industrial and multifamily. Fundamentals for those two sectors don't change in a negative way over the next five to 10 years. And the housing shortage for the apartment business and residential generally will continue to be huge. So what does all of that mean? What does that mean also? We've just had job cuts in the technology sector and we do a lot of work with, we're doing work with Google Development Ventures and their great big partnership with Lendlease. And there's been huge job cuts both at Google and Lendlease in those areas. So there are definitely job cuts and there are people feeling pain. So there's no doubt that that's going to happen. Last comment is my belief in the overall trend in the real estate business and real estate investment business is towards more institutionalization, more professionalization, and the critical nature of the real estate platform, the business, not just the assets of real estate, will increasingly be, as we've seen over the last 20 years, will increasingly be the story of real estate. So that means careers in real estate will keep going. And strong talent will need to have places and companies can't afford to lose the folks that drive their businesses in a positive way. Other comment to this is there's also transformations going on, not just in office space, but in decarbonization of our business. And I don't think we've begun to see the hiring activity yet around that within the commercial real estate space. But we can talk about that further if you want to draw into it. But there's so much going on, so much, I think, employment left and so much difference to be made for people to create their careers in the real estate business. 
So there's a there's a lot to unpack there. I want to take it in a few different places. So for, first, just from brass tacks, you're on the phone every day. I know that you have, you know, some of the strongest and broadest relationships in our industry, and you're talking to executives. And I think we can all agree that, you know, with perfect conscience, the thing to do in a market like this is to invest in your people and plan for the future because the strong will get stronger. Is that what you're hearing and seeing or are, or are leaders afraid? Are they willing to make the investment today in the infrastructure and the people that they need to be more resilient and come out of this market stronger? So it's so interesting because executives today have been through one, two, three, four cycles in the past. So they know what a cycle is and a cycle means that the beginning of the cycle, they will see the end of the cycle. And they've seen that multiple times. There's also a wall of capital waiting to be spent, waiting for the cycle and the uptick to happen and pricing to bottom to be hit and the rest of that. And that capital is going to be invested in the real estate business. Is it a chance to right size? Yeah. If you're ahead of your skis, if you're a developer and you're not going to do any starts for two years, you can't lose your whole team, but you're going to lose some members of your team. And sometimes you're going to lose the people on your team who are losable versus the people who you got to keep in or court to your business. So some businesses are a little bit like an expand and contract accordion, and that is just the natural part of business. But the companies will survive absolutely whatsoever. Now, companies that don't know who they are and have to find their place in the business and reinvent themselves into this new world versus having their knitting be strong and the prognosis for their knitting to be strong going forward, I worry about those businesses. I agree with that. And, and I'm glad to hear that that's what you're hearing. Now, when you think about a company knowing what their identity is, there's a lot of kind of passion by our industry in particular for being together, right? A lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, people own office buildings in the commercial real estate business. And COVID has created this dislocation where, you know, at least at our company, we went from being 90% in-person, 10% remote, remote going into COVID to now being 10% in-person or less and 90% right. remote. And it's not uncommon for me to have conversations with executives where they tell me that in order to run a real estate business, they need everybody in the office four days a week minimum. And I tell them that we've been, we've managed to grow a technology business very intentionally in a remote way. Now, both of us can be right. It's not a function of right or wrong, but I'm curious to hear your perspective on what role is the office playing in being physically co-located in an office in these human capital conversations where you're talking about recruiting executives to lead important functions or entire businesses? Like, how is that actually playing out on the front lines? Yeah. So my sense is all over the place. So I, I, I'm i going to give you the non-answer to this. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I was with one of the massively large investment managers last week and in New York, and their comment was five days a week for our home office people. Boom. This is environment. We're intense. We got to be together. We're going to make that work. I've been with other leaders who I think are fuddy-duddies on that subject. And they're just saying, hey, I'm used to five days a week. You got to do five days a week. And I've been doing it my whole life. So you have to do it your whole life too. And I think those companies were going to have trouble with that. I work from home. I love it. It's been a blessing. I do a weird thing. So I'm able to do it from home. I worry about young people being trained, young people finding career paths, young being, people being mentored, young people finding culture within organizations. So how do you accomplish all of these things at the same time? And also a lot of young people who are hyper ambitious, they're going to want to be in the office. They're going to want to attach themselves to a mentor, attach themselves to a peer group. And, and the intensity of that in real estate matters. And the last thing that matters in real estate, and it's funny because you were going to say people want to get together. I think of that both in the office, but I also think of face-to-face -face meetings because relationships in our business are absolutely essential. In the high-tech business, generally, relationships I don't think matter that much. It's a different kind of thing. It's about numbers. But in real estate, it's very much a relationship business. So how do you develop relationships that are real and lasting if all of it's going to be on Zoom, that doesn't work because it's the dinners, it's drinks, it's ball games, it's hanging out, it's running with someone, cycling, which we've done together. 
those things matter equally. So how can you do all of that and then have some flexibility to say, yeah, I work from home three days a week because I don't want to spend my time commuting, which is a waste. So therefore, if you work from home two or three days a week, but the times that you come together, then what's accomplished during those times that you come together and how can that be really gelled for culture, for training, for mentoring? And I think we're going to find new ways to accomplish each and every one of those things. Yeah, I think we already are. I mean, one thing that we've observed, you know, through our own lens is the, you know, need to kind of deeply document a lot of kind of activities that we do because it enables people to, you know, first understand and then they can ask questions. And that's just something that is unique when you're operating in a world that lacks the context of being able to communicate face to face all the time, or at least in person all the time. But also the importance of periodic in-person gatherings. I was in San Francisco yesterday for the beginning of this week, and we had 60 leaders at our company meeting in person together in right. an office. And that was really rewarding to, to see everybody. And you realize, you know, people are live beings. It's great to, great to communicate in real life. We had a global ZRG conference last week at Jacksonville, and everyone said to me, oh, you're tall. <laughs> they only know me within a square box. That's right. But it was really interesting because in a partnership organization, if you know your partners and touch and feel them, as well as just do Zooms, then you can collaborate. And that is what, you know, synergies and collaboration are really, really important across business. So that won't go away. Well, speaking of partnership, collaboration, mentorship, you mentioned this need for kind of younger people to want to prove themselves and to be able to find mentors and be mentored. One of the areas where you and I share a lot of passion is on the evolution of leadership inside of the commercial real estate industry. I've personally been involved with work at the Urban Land Institute through their Young Leaders and Next Initiatives. I know you're very involved in ULI as well. How do you think about this gap? Or maybe it's not a gap. I think of it as a gap. So maybe let me ask the question differently. What do you think, how well do you think our industry is positioned to take people who have knowledge and elevate them inside of the companies that exist into the next generation of leaders? Or do you think we have a gap that we need to work on closing? Mm. So I, I think there's always a gap here because we're always looking to develop leadership and very few people start as leaders. So in my view, and I I'm, I have a very strong view about this, which is within the real estate business, people grow up through a discipline. And they take that discipline, they become masters at that discipline. And some people, and this is not a negative, think of a broker. They get to the top of that discipline. They have a wonderful career. They do a great job at that. And that's where they go. But some people want to go beyond their discipline to multi-disciplines, which kind of gets them into the leadership rank. In real estate, when I started my career, so go back 20, 50, 20, 30 years ago, real estate was about the cowboys and it was about the assets and it was all about the deals. And I said this at the top of the podcast, but it's a theme for me that really matters. And real estate, as it's become more institutionalized, is less about just the transactions. I say it's equally about the business platform. Business platform is run by leaders, not deal people. So how do we, and so and our industry has had to discover leaders who would build those business platforms, then maintain those business platforms, then get them better and better. And that's really been the evolution of real estate over the last 20 years. That doesn't mean that we don't still have asset managers, property management managers, developers, transaction people, but that leadership thing is a new discipline within real estate that people get to. And do we have a gap there? Yeah, sure, because we should be world-class. Do we have world-class leaders within the real estate business? Absolutely. A lot of leaders discover the thing that they're building as they build it. They weren't born to do that. When I talked to Alex, you're right, he created your company, but then it was through the growth of that company that his leadership came through because it's a different business than he'd ever done before. How do you prepare for that? So lots to talk about and unpack right in there. So how do you prepare for that? I think that's a good segue. <laughs> well, I think it's a couple things, right? So one is I think people need breadth and perspective, intelligence and curiosity and understanding the holistic business and caring about the holistic business. And maybe that comes from 
you know, going to business school or going to Harvard Business School, I still think the things that we used to learn were how to be great investors through those programs, not how to be great leaders. And I think a lot of that is inherent in people. Some of that could be learned behavior. And also the leaders that I talk to, and I've done it through the podcast, you know, some of them do it through they're the greatest transactor in the history of the world, and they can just pick deals and find that, and then they can grow a company around that brilliance. Other people grow a company because the company wants to be great at something or it wants to be big at something. So it, it, there's different pathways to get to that place. And there are themes, I think, in great leaders around that, but they're all different flavors while there's still those themes. So if you're a candidate and you're working, if you're working with a candidate who's looking to find a company that embodies these different characteristics and attributes of enabling great leaders to emerge inside of their platform, what are you asking them to look for? I mean, I know you typically work with the company and then go find the candidate, but let's just hypothetically exactly. say it's, it's the other way around. I mean, if you were on the <laughs> flip side, what would you be encouraging people to look for in a great company, you know, to help identify if there's a path for, you know, leadership, if you will? based on the culture of that company and the, their values. Yeah, so it's interesting. And, and I'll, I'll change your word if that's okay from leadership to success in your career there because most people may not become the leader. When we, we say the word leadership, we think of the leader or the number two in the company, but maybe it winds up being the head of asset management, right? Or head of transactions or head of development or whatever that word is because there's still leadership within the discipline. But I think you want to find a company that, Everyone talks about great culture, but not every company is a great culture. And you know it when you see it. We know the companies in our industry that they're great to work for. They promote people. They respect people. They listen to people. They pay people well. There's an alumni network from that company that I can go there for five years and then move on. And that alumni network will let me do business within my industry highly successfully. Sometimes it's a small company you want to go to at a certain point in your career. Sometimes it's a large company. So it's really dependent upon the person. There's no rule to say, hey, you should be at a big company because you can play multiple roles and figure your way out. Because at a big company, you could experiment in three roles till you find that you're really an asset management person. At a small company, you can wear three hats, one of which is asset management, and then you gravitate that. So I think it depends on the leaders and are they teachers? Are they mentors? Do they want to help you get there? That's another attribute that I look for all the time. And who knows if the CEO is that way, but is your boss going to be that way? Oh gosh, best CEO in the industry, but my boss is a pain in the neck and is going to block me and just use me as a tool versus use me as someone to mentor and grow. This, this may be an impossible question, but when you're taking on new clients or the actual companies who are looking to hire, how do you vet that? How do you get a sense? Is it because you have longstanding relationships or is there, a, are there tools or questions or tactics that you can use to get a sense of the type of company that you're looking to work with? Yeah. So the first thing is you're asking in some ways the Lake Wobegon question. Not everyone's better than average. Every one of my clients is better than average. I wish that was the case. So we do work with clients and we go, oh, this is going to be a tough one because it's a tough environment or the role isn't perfect or will a person be happy and be successful there? And I'd like to say that we only work with clients 100% of the time where those attributes are all perfect, but sometimes they're not. <laughs> so I'm in the transaction business as well as in the build business. So that happens. And it's really interesting, though, and I'm answering your question differently than you're asking it. But as you get to know a client and through a search, oh, my God, you get to see how they're perceived in the marketplace. You get to see how they act in the marketplace and how they act to us. And by the time the placement happens and 95 percent of the time the placement does happen, you're intimate and you're deep in knowing what that situation is. And the right candidate usually finds the right client. Sometimes they may only be there for two years, I hate to say. So I don't, I don't again, not everyone's better than average in the like Wobegon world. Yeah. I, I think it's important to remind the listeners, you said, how they interact with us. And I think that that's really important because I've observed there's two really distinct types of firms out there. And, you know, we focus on, you know, private equity firms and commercial real estate, PE, venture capital, et cetera. 
And we're, we see ourselves as a partner. And most of the time people see us as a partner, like they see you as a partner. And occasionally they see us as a vendor with a lowercase v. And when they do, they sometimes have a tendency to treat you as such. And one of the things that I have the privilege of understanding is how do people work in a sales process? How do people work when they're getting to know you? How do they treat you? How do they treat their teams? How much permission do leaders give their mid-level people to make decisions, to fail? How much flexibility and accountability do they have? And these are things that, you know, people who are in positions like you and I have the privilege of seeing, but really can often show the true colors of an organization, both their absolute strengths and make them look so much more impressive than we already thought they were. And also sometimes you realize the firms that look the best don't always have the best culture and you can't really figure that out until you're you're in it with them. So I think that's a really interesting point to remind everyone is how you treat people, not only your employees matters a lot. It, it shows us a lot. We, we watch this with candidates. So here's a warning for candidates. When you walk in the door to an interview, how you treat the receptionist might show up on someone's notes. <laughs> it happens in our business, the, the way they treat our executive assistant, executive coordinator. If someone's a creep to our people, we know that and we put that in the data bank for something that matters. One other thing about culture, though, there's times in your career where you may be in an organization has a tough culture. Wall Street has a tough culture. I think people want to start their careers there. There's a benefit to starting their careers there and getting the training in a Wall Street kind of an organization for three, four years. Like those people go really far in their lives. So culture, it's not such a simple nice. Nice is not a meaningful word with respect to culture. It's a place where can I grow? Can I get stuff out of this? Will it help my reputation? Will I get to do a lot of business? Will I get to learn a lot? Will I get exposed to a lot of people? Another thing I talk about, it's a real challenge for people, say, who are in property level accounting. They don't know anybody, right? In real estate, so many people know people. They have to deal with their peers. They can see other organizations. And there's inward facing roles where people don't have that advantage in real estate just by the nature of the function. And that's a dangerous place, although it's normal in those functional areas. They're not the folks who have great perspective on the outside world. So I want to use the word perspective and I want to expand the conversation to ESG, but really focused on kind of, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, DEI. And I'm curious, you know, you've been in this industry for a long time. These are not necessarily new concepts or new ideas, but they're starting to finally get the momentum that they've long deserved. How have you seen kind of a shift take place inside of your clients? And I know ESG and DEI are, di they're, they're, they're different. They're subsets of a similar- Talk about each, right. We could talk about each, exactly. So maybe let's, maybe let's start with ESG and then we'll move to, to DEI and how that's impacting your clients. Okay. So for ES and G, it, it all- does matter. Sometimes it's lip service. Like, let's think about E, and I care deeply about E. On my podcast, every August, I have two episodes on environmental and carbon. One thing I've discovered, just in case your folks, we, we all haven't heard this, is 40% of carbon emissions across the globe come from the built environment. About three quarters of that's from existing buildings and one quarter is through the construction and building process. So our industry affects carbon in a huge way. And the solution, therefore, to carbon is going to come from our industry. And we're at the first steps of doing that. We're not that mature in the process yet in the real estate business. People have to look at their portfolios. But the first question is always payback. Payback's getting quicker, meaning if I put on a solar roof, is that going to work? And am I going to get paid back for doing that? And their investors may or may not require it. Or payback may say, well, I just made money doing it. So that's good. But sometimes those lines are going to cross, sometimes soon, I hope. But the E part is absolutely essential, and I think it's the future of the real estate business and the future of spend in the real estate business. So that that's one. Governance, it's huge. Uh, we've transformed boards of directors in public real estate companies over time. We're not there yet, but we've transformed both from a standpoint of having women on boards as well as having people of color on boards. So that's changed. We're not finished. Also, when I used to walk into a room, and I, we think of ULI as the room for me, but when I'd walk into the ULI room 30 years ago, when I kind of was early in my career, it was all white guys. It was a lot of old white guys. And now that room, particularly in the young leader room, is incredibly diverse. 
Now it's going to take time for that to cohort to work its way through the industry to become leaders. And we're way underrepresented in terms of leaders of women leaders or people of color, but we're getting there. They now exist in the business and they are in the room. So there's hard to be in a room with all old white guys now or all age white guys. So that, that has changed and will continue to change. And when you're talking to your clients, I mean, is this something that most firms are already thinking about themselves or what percentage of the time do you need to introduce this as a concept that they should be thinking about or even required as part of your search? How do you incorporate that into your practice? Yeah. So most of the larger companies are highly aware of this. We've done searches for REITs where it is either a mandate for a percentage of the candidate pool to be diverse, which could either be women sometimes or diverse either way, and they're separate. And But I've seen that mandate and that matters. And we work very, very hard in our search practice to have that be the outcome of a candidate pool. We've had the mandate within other searches for the candidate pool, particularly to be diverse, people of color. And we also deliver on that mandate. So there's companies that both require that we do a lot of work in the nonprofit sector, nonprofit housing sector in particular. And that's a changeover that is going to have to happen and is happening in a pretty meaningful way. So we have 100% consciousness around that. Most of our clients do. Sometimes a client puts it in the back burner and doesn't raise the subject. They may already be there. So therefore we don't have to as much. Or in specific roles, it's harder in some roles than others to get diversity. So it's yet a different question. So I often hear in the quote room that I understand Matt, and I would love to have a more diverse executive team or a more diverse workforce, but the talent pool does not exist that enables me to do that. How do you answer? What's your reaction to that kind of question that I'm sure you've heard? Before. Yeah, it's it's true and not true. So in the searches I've worked on where we've had this as a mandate, we are delivering candidates of color and equal female and male candidate slates and stuff like that. And then you choose the best candidate and you choose the person who's most appropriate. And that might wind up as the white guy, which is okay, but it's within context of that overall big picture. But no, in particular for people of color, there's a challenge of, of, of people coming into the business. And at the mid-career level, we don't have the level of diverse candidate pools that we want to have mid and upper levels. And we also, Cedric Bobo from Project Destin has been on Leading Voices twice, I think. And that's a really important part of the business is to get the pipeline coming in. Just to amplify that for those listeners that aren't familiar with Cedric and his work, can you maybe explain a little bit more about the role that he plays in helping to solve these problems? Yeah. So Project Destin's a wonderful, wonderful organization. Cedric's based in DC and he brings young people, primarily of color, into the real estate business starting in high school and then through college and then in training programs. And he's partnered with, he's, every day I get another email with from him on another organization he's partnered with. It's the same number of emails I get from Juniper Square, actually, with yet another organization <laughs> you partnered with. But Cedric will go across the industry with a partnership to bring in interns, to bring in people right out of college. They're working with HBCUs to have people there understand that real estate is a career path. It's interesting. So there's just so much work to do at a young age. And young people don't understand real estate. And this isn't just people of color. They don't know this is a real estate. They don't understand it's the pathway to a great career. And also for young people who want to make a difference, and they want to make a difference in their cities, or they want to make a difference around carbon in particular, they want to make a difference around affordable housing or housing affordability, Real estate is a wonderful career for people to have an impact going forward. And young people, in some ways, don't know about our industry. Our industry has a bad name in the popular press. And so we have work to do, and that's part of what I try to do in the podcast, is to help raise the level of our name in the in the New York Times so that people say, whoa, here's a problem that could be solved by the real estate business, and they're there to do this. Totally agree. I, I completely agree with that. And I... 
very appreciative of the work that you're doing to advance the industry and, and advocate for for it. One of the things that you mentioned is, you know, young people don't know it exists. And another thing that's related to that is young people in particular are very kind of savvy to technology and efficiency, this new generation. And historically, real estate, at least through my lens, has per- been perceived as stodgy and antiquated and analog and all these different things, which we've made a lot of really good progress towards over the last you know decade, decade and a half. But how do you see or what have you seen in the role that technology has played across the entirety of our business? And I think you're really uniquely positioned to answer this because I know you started your career kind of at this intersection of technology and real estate before it was even a thing or data and right. real estate before it was a thing. Yeah, it's so interesting. So again, when I talk about the real estate business platform being where the value is, the long-term value of a company, and, and I'm going backwards, but I'll answer the question. So if, if you think of the platform as having value and assets come in and out of the platform, so the assets matter less than the platform does. It's the stability and strength of that platform. One of the elements that have let the real estate platform grow to have meaning is technology. It's data. And it's reporting. And it's reporting to investors. It's transparency, right? All of that requires technology now to do that and did not exist back in the day of the real estate partnerships being the king. Now it's the business platform and the, and the investment portfolio being the king. That's all about technology. Wasn't there before. I'm remembering the days when people didn't want to put a PC on the desk of a property manager because A, they had to do a dial-up modem. B, they thought they wouldn't know how to work the computer. And C, if they did it, they'd be looking at pornography instead of doing their work. And now it's all tablets and it's all there and everything is kind of automated. So it has transformed the real estate business. If a young person says this is a stodgy business from their standpoint, have them look at PropTech, companies like yours, and all the PropTech investments that have come into the business. Have them look at environmental tech, climate tech, that's come into the real estate business. I think for a young person, and I was thinking about this the other day, ULI now has three planks to its its mission. Plank one is climate change. Plank two is housing affordability. Plank three is diversity in the business. If I look at those first two planks, and I was making a bet on a career as a 25-year-old getting out of graduate school, where do I want to go? What business do I want to be in? In real estate, you can make a really huge difference. So it's technology, it's climate. It's housing affordability. It's building our great cities. It's rebuilding our cities because of the issues from work from home and what that's done to some of our cities, especially a place like San Francisco. Yeah. I think you could say a lot of things about our industry, but one thing you can't say is that it's static. Everything's changing every second of every day, which is fascinating. One wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. Right. That would not have been the headline about real estate. The headline would have been, hey, people have their heels dug in to go as slow as they possibly can for change. Again, now these business platforms know that growth and the competition from the humongous groups makes it so that you have to play that way. And capital drives it. And capital also at this point requires sophistication among their counterparties. Totally agree. So let's move to the podcast. You know, a lot of people, I was just having a conversation and I like to joke that I'm a cultural black hole. If you know me, you know, I don't really watch a lot of movies. I don't listen to a ton of music, not because I'm against it. It's just, I do other things. And then jokingly, one of my colleagues said, well, what's your favorite real estate podcast? And I said, Leading Voices with Matt Sleppin, of course. And I couldn't think of what my favorite movie was. I couldn't think of my favorite, (laughs) you know, band, but I could think of my favorite podcast. And one of the reasons that and I'm not just saying this because you're a guest on on my podcast, but one of the reasons that I appreciate it is I think it's so fascinating to understand the stories of the leaders who have shaped this industry and gotten us to this point. And those are your guests. So maybe talk to us a little bit about why did you get into podcasting? And then how do you think about who you're inviting onto your show, curating the content, and what you want your audience to take away from those episodes? Cool. Well, great question. And thank you for asking. And thank you for the compliment on the show, because I absolutely love doing it, as as you know. What got me into it is it was a joint venture with the Urban Land Institute. And I was looking for a lealeship role at, the U, at ULI. I didn't know what it could or should be. 
And a woman named Ellen Klassen, a good friend, came to me and said, the head of the ULI Foundation said, hey, I have an idea. But Ellen came to me and got on the phone and kind of said, do you want to be our Terry Gross? And if, if everyone knows what Fresh Air is and Terry Gross is, and she's one of my heroes, and you want me to be the Terry Gross for ULI? Oh, my God. Now, I had already been doing a series of interviews in thought leadership in the Bay Area where I was interviewing real estate executives with the thesis that we talked about before, which is talking about their business platform versus their real estate and the importance of platform. So this is a theme that I've had going for 10, 15 years. And so we started the podcast and it was really interesting. That was six years ago. We've been through 140 episodes. And of course, when you start something, you don't think you're creating a library. You think you're doing a thing. But it turns out that after 140 episodes, we have a library and an archive that really means something. So programming to add to the archive and add to the thesis that we're, we've created is really important. Second thing is when COVID hit, so in the first three years, I would have people come on and tell stories, their their career story. And I found there were a lot of wisdom from people's career stories, and we were pulling out really cool stuff. And I'm a recruiter, so I love hearing people's stories, and I love hearing about their companies. Well, when COVID hit, that felt stale, and it felt like it was missing the point, because what I really wanted to say is, how the hell are you dealing with this problem? And so we started pivoting. We totally pivoted the, the show to talk to people first and foremost about how you're dealing with this. You know, Rose Associates, Amy Rose, like in New York, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, we did the same in, in retail. We did it in every sector. So we had these great conversations. And then I found that the discussion first and foremost about the business that this person's in was more important to me than their career story. And also for young people to hear these stories, which is really the audience I think about, I want young people to see the breadth and diversity of the things that we do in real estate. And then if they hear the story of how someone built a $40 billion real estate portfolio, that's interesting too, right? But I want to talk about what's that $40 billion real estate portfolio, and that's Chris Merrill will be the next podcast. And so that's what he did, right? From a concept. How did he do that? But then what is that portfolio? What's what's resilient about that portfolio? What's interesting about that portfolio? So in the podcast, A, I'm a curious guy. So I want to figure out what that is. And I want to learn. And I'll ask dumb questions to learn about it. I come to the podcast knowing something. But I'm trying to get it so that the average listener who knows a bunch about real estate but isn't an expert is going to learn something from that guest. The second thing, and I'm going to quote a podcast I listened to last week, Rick Rubin, the amazing music producer, was on the Ezra Klein show. And Ezra Klein's one of my favorite podcasts. And Rick Rubin talked about leveling up. And he said, through your life, you have phases. And during your phases, you kind of level up. You level up your colleagues. You level up your friends. You aspire to greater things if you're able to do this. And he talked about that leveling up thought. And for me, through these 140 episodes I've done, I've leveled up in a way that I could not have imagined would have occurred to me. So to sit toe-to-toe -to -toe with a billionaire and talk about real estate and talk about the business and talk about the meaning of these things, so that's rubbed off on me in a meaningful way. And so then I bring that to the next conversation. I bring that to my life. I bring that to my business. So I've lucked out so much to have these conversations with these amazing leaders, and it's changed my perspective on the world. It's really great. It's fascinating. And, and, and the guests, are, and the guests, the audience is there along for the ride. And since I am trying so with such passion to pull stuff out of these people, I think my guests generally get it. I think so. It comes, it comes through loud and clear in terms of the message that you're delivering and the insights that they're sharing. So I have two questions I want to close with one on the podcast and one about career advice for people in real estate. So we didn't rehearse this, but you have nearly unfettered access to every leader in the real estate industry. But if there's one person who you're not yet in touch with, who you would like to interview on your podcast, who would that be and why are they interesting to you? So I'm going to answer it two ways. So first of all, if I could talk to anybody, I either want Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen to be on my show and we'll find a way to talk about real estate, but I'm ready for that show. So if that was tomorrow, I know what I want to ask. Second thing is, 
Hamid Mogadam, you are listening to this. You know I've been asking you for years. Please come on the show. Can't <laughs> wait. All right. We'll do everything we can to get Hamid on the show. The last and final question, you are, whether you're a young person looking to get into the business or you're already in the business and you want to move up, or you're a mid-career professional looking to make the pivot that we talked about, what is the one piece of advice that you can offer in terms of how to best position yourself in the eyes of your future employer? I don't, I don't know if there's one, but I'll say a couple different things. So first of all, it's a long game and it's a long career. So you're going to be in the real estate business probably, and I hope for your whole career, and approach it as if you're making an investment every day to 40 years in this business. Your relationships, your learning experience, the transactions that you work on, the resume that you're building, look at it over that period of time all the time. And, and that changes everything. So if you look at it as today or you look at it as the next job versus the next 40 years, it changes the perspective on how you can manage your career. Relationships hugely matter in this business. Reputation hugely matters in this business, particularly over the long game. Find your role. I think that's the hardest thing to do. And you may have to morph to the place that you can really make a difference and you can really be successful. And it really speaks to who you are in the business versus who you might think you are or who you might want to be. Those would be the two things I think about. I love that. Well, Matt, this has been a really special experience for me. Having listened to you for so long on your podcast, getting to have you on mine is quite the honor. For our guests who would like to get in touch with you or follow along on your podcast, can you maybe share the best way for people to either get in touch or follow your journey? Yeah. So the podcast is best access. First of all, you get it on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast application is. You can also see the entire library there on your podcast app or at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And then my email is matt or is mslepin at gpartners.com. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. As always, it's great to chat and be well. You're welcome. Thank you, Brandon. This was fun. Really enjoyed. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. Subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.